Many thanks to Clayton for filling in for Chris in his absence. We certainly do appreciate it. And as always, we are very appreciative of our musicians, our worship team, who come up here pretty early on a Sunday morning uh, to get ready. It is, does not go unnoticed. And again, it certainly is appreciated. Um, I think it's working. Um, Wednesday night, we made an announcement that we were going to begin to use the overflow room, right? And so Brian, I think, is back there to, with about half of his care group. And it does look a little lighter back there and roomier. There's some space. So that's, uh, that's kind of nice. Looks like it's working. So a little shout out to our volunteers, our guinea pigs back in the Edwards room who are watching in on the live feed. If you missed it Wednesday night, this is sort of a plan, a temporary fix moving forward to get half a care group, something like that, uh, each Sunday to, uh, to gather in the Edwards room to watch the service live in order to alleviate some of the, the stress in here, the crowdedness. And um, it's a good problem to have, but also a wonderful, I think, short-term remedy anyway that we're availing ourselves of. It's time for us to continue to worship by turning in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians 8. And just before we get to this portion of God's Word, I want to make three preliminary remarks concerning 1 Corinthians. Most of you have heard these. If um, you're just visiting today or you have been with us for a short time, now, perhaps it's quite possible you haven't heard these. So new or old, I trust these will be profitable. Uh, really give us a firm grasp on 1 Corinthians in its entirety and serve us well as we delve into the 8th chapter today. And so Teresa is going to help me with the slides and we're going to bring up a few and just walk you through three preliminary remarks. The first is this, I want to remind you of the letter's relevance. It is relevant. I know if you've read it on your own or as you've listened to some of these sermons and heard some of these texts read, chapter 8, a case in point, you, it's quite possible you have been tempted to think to yourself, this is of no relevance at all. This doesn't speak into my life. This doesn't speak into my situation. This doesn't speak into my context. Today, we're going to read a food offered to idols. That's not the world you live in. And so you're struggling with its relevance. Let me affirm again, this letter is extremely relevant. Every verse. We need to guard, I need to guard against the temptation of falling into cultural and um, geographical, dare I call it, snobbery, thinking that we are a unique generation and everything must speak immediately into my life as I define it. That is to be rather self-absorbed. Scripture transcends space and time and the truths of Scripture are timeless. While the circumstances at first glance, the prevalent circumstances in the church at Corinth may not exactly match up with our circumstances, the truths and lessons and principles that are being conveyed then are as relevant now. 
And we need to listen carefully and thoughtfully to the word of God. That's the first preliminary remark. The second remark is this. It concerns the letter's structure. And here's where Teresa is going to help me. You can bring up the first slide then. Just by way of reminder, there's the general overview of the epistle. The structure is very simple. Paul gives us huge clues as to how he is writing, how he is responding. There is an introduction in the first nine verses. There is a conclusion in chapter 16. And so you have the bulk of the letter in between the introduction and the conclusion. In the first major section, he is responding to a report. He tells us that very thing in chapter 1, verse 11. And he responds to that report all the way through to the end of chapter 6. In the second major section, he is responding to a written letter that he has received from the church at Corinth. And his response then all the way through chapter 7, 8, 9 to the end of 15. What's in these two responses? Next slide, Teresa. Here's his response to the report that he has received. He addresses four disturbing problems. Do you remember these? Those of you who were here, someone raise your hand. Arthur and Rosetta. Okay, I got a prize for you later or something. I don't know. Four disturbing problems. Quarreling, boasting, defrauding, and sinning. That's what he does then in the first section. Hey, Chloe's people have come to me. They have raised these four prevalent problems in the church. I'm writing this letter to set things in order. Second section, Teresa. Here he's responding to a letter he has received in which the church at Corinth raises five perplexing issues. Marriage. We can breathe a sigh of relief. We made it through chapter 7 unscathed. We're all still here in our right frame of mind. Lengthy chapter, difficult chapter in places. The next perplexing issue that we're now entering, culture. We're just going to call it culture. Chapters 8, 9, and 10. Worship, chapter 11. Spirituality, chapters 12, 13, and 14. And then the resurrection in chapter 15. There's the structure. You see what we've covered so far? You know now exactly where we are, chapter 8, what we're entering, and we're just going to begin to take a look at this rather lengthy section, 8, 9, and 10, in which Paul is dealing, he addresses these issues related to the church's interaction with, relationship with culture. Okay, so it's relevance, it's structure. Thirdly, it's message. What is Paul communicating? He tells us in the first nine verses, the introduction. And there he reminds the Corinthian believers of their identity in the Lord Jesus. They have been implanted into Christ. They are one with the Lord Jesus. This is to shape their identity. And therefore, everything that flows after the introduction relates back to it. It is an application of the principal truth, the primary truth articulated in the first nine verses. He reminds them that they are the called of God. He reminds them that they are knit together with Christ. He reminds them that Christ has become to them 
wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so this is the central message. Please, Corinthian believers, this is who you are. This is your identity. This is your status in Christ. And now this is how your identity is to be worked out in all of these problems and questions and issues that you have raised or that have been reported to me. Let me state it slightly differently. Next slide, Teresa. A little quote from James Packer to make sure we're getting the central message of this letter. J.I. Packer writes the following. The taproot. Or so the fountain, foundation, whatever kind of comparison you want to use. I think you get the idea. The taproot of our entire salvation is our union with Christ by the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be one with Christ. That is the central message of the Bible that is the central message of the gospel. It is, as a matter of fact, the main offer of the gospel. In the gospel, God is offering us the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is offering us Christ to be received through faith, whereby by means of the Holy Spirit, we become one with him. That is now who we are. We are Christians in Christ. That is our identity our status. This has three tremendous implications. The first, Teresa, next slide. It means that salvation is positional. It's positional, primarily in the first degree. We have been implanted into Christ. So here I sense Stephen Yule, and by God's grace, there was a moment in time when I began to believe, and I have not ceased believing, in the Lord Jesus. At that moment of time, by the Holy Spirit, through faith, these were the marriage knots that knit me together with Christ. In God's reckoning, I was implanted in Christ positionally. It means that his dying and rising are mine. They belong to all Christians. God imputes them to us as if we perform them in our own persons. So as far as God is concerned, in his estimation, you just caught my eye, Jeff Phillips, in his estimation of Jeff, Jeff died. He died. And he rose again. That did not happen in Jeff's experience. It happened in Christ, but they are now counted to be Jeff's because Jeff is one with the Lord Jesus implanted to him into him. That is our position. That's our identity. That's our status. That's who we are. We have died in Christ. We've been born again in Christ. We are part of a new creation in Christ. The first implication is positional. The second, Teresa, it means salvation is relational. We have been implanted into Christ. The indwelling Holy Spirit now speaks to us by the word of God, thereby nurturing our faith in Christ. This is the means by which we grow. We enjoy a relationship with the Lord Jesus. And the third implication, Teresa, the last slide, 
It means necessarily, and this is the point the Corinthian church is struggling with. It means that salvation is transformational. Always transformational. We have been implanted into Christ. The indwelling Holy Spirit now empowers us to express new desires in action. Christ-like character. In other words, we are now called and we are enabled by the Holy Spirit to live out what we are positionally. The fact that we've been implanted into Christ, his dying and his rising are ours. God reckons them to be ours. He imputes them to us. We are now to live accordingly. We are to be transformed. And we are to live out in all of life what it means to be one with Christ. Take the slides away, Teresa. This is where the Corinthian church has broken down. And this is why, precisely why, the Corinthian church is a church in chaos. They have lost sight of their identity in Christ. It is no longer front and center in their reasoning and their reckoning. They no longer understand themselves as being in Christ. They are no longer deriving their identity and their status from Christ. What are they doing? They're looking to 101 other things. And all Paul is doing now in the bulk of the epistle is correcting them and drawing their attention back to who they are, their identity, and how their identity speaks into all of these problem areas which have arisen because they've misunderstood this very fundamental thing that their status, all that they are, is in Christ. You get all that? One, two, and three. That's the epistle. And we jump in today with chapter 8, and we address another manifestation then, another consequence of the fact that the Corinthian church has lost sight of who they are. Chapter 8, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. You sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. What's going on? That's the first obvious question. 
Look at the opening statement. Now concerning food offered to idols. This is difficult for us to enter into. I, I don't think here in Glen Rose we ever encounter you know, shelves of Brookshire's. I don't think we're dealing with food offered to idols. The closest I come to it in my experience is the country of Nepal. Eleven years ago, I was there teaching at a Bible college in the city of Kathmandu. And if you've ever been in that part of the world, Nepal, India, even portions of Singapore, I remember the city of Singapore being quite similar, um, you will see hundreds, thousands. I mean, the city of Kathmandu just chock full of shrines and temples and images. A lot of the images of a snake. And um, I can tell you where that comes from. You don't need to be that clever to figure that out. And uh, one of the things that caught my attention, I remember it so clearly, is uh, the food that you would see at the foot of these images. People would bring tangerine oranges or bread or other things that they'd made at home. And they would come and they would bring them and they would present them to these idols. This was food offered to idols. Difficult for us to relate to. We don't experience it head on, face to face in our cultural context. But stay with it. As it turns out, as it turns out, this isn't actually the main problem. It is a symptom of the main problem. And so while we may not be confronting those or, or, or living in society in which food is offered to idols today, the problem underlying this practice, this issue in the Corinthian church is a problem we still struggle with today. The manifestation of it is different, but the root is exactly the same. So what is going on now concerning food offered to idols? I'll walk you through it. Four steps we need to get. Okay. Number one, Evidently, there is a segment of the church, a significant segment of people who gather in temples to eat food offered to idols. So we've seen that expression in verse one now concerning food offered to idols. It actually seems to be a little more involved than that, because look at what we read in verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple. So we're not merely talking about an individual walking in the open market someday in Corinth, sees some meat there at some vendor stall, decides to buy it without realizing that that meat that one time was part of a cow that was actually slaughtered as part of some sort of festival or sacrificial ritual associated with some God. That's not actually the issue. What seems to be going on here is there are people in the church at Corinth who are actually going up to the temples. It was a city full of temples. There was a temple for Aphrodite. There was a temple for Hermes. There was a temple for Apollo. There was a temple for, for Poseidon. It was full of temples. And some of these believers in the church, they were actually going up to these temples. And, you know, Temple of Aphrodite, there it is on the hill. Up we go. There are a thousand, you know, temple prostitutes. But I'll just turn a blind eye to them. And I'm going to actually participate in this feast. It's food. And um, this is the practice. This is what's going on in the church at Corinth. Second thing I want us to notice is this. They insist, these people actually insist that their practice is the outworking of their knowledge. They call it knowledge. And so verse one, now concerning food offered to idols, 
I believe Paul is now quoting their position. This is what they have written to him. Remember, we know that all of us possess knowledge. What is this knowledge? This knowledge for these believers has become another status symbol. Remember, this is a church in which people have lost sight of their identity in Christ. They are looking to something other than Christ as the grounds of their status before God. Some of them are looking to their leaders. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. Some of them are looking to their ascetic practices, their asceticism, their celibacy, for example. Others, they're looking to their spiritual gifts and miraculous and wonderful experiences. They're looking to this, they're looking to that. And they have decided that these things are what mark them out, set them apart, impart to them spiritual status. And a case in point now is this knowledge. We know that all of us possess this knowledge. That we can go up to the temples and we can partake of these feasts and eat this food. And it sets us apart. It reminds us of our status in Christ. This knowledge, in other words, has become a marker that they are using to confirm themselves in some sort of identity or status in the Lord's sight before their brothers and sisters. Notice thirdly. They defend their practice on theological grounds. Verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, and here again he uses the same phrase that he used in verse 1. We know that. And again, I believe it's a citation from what he has received from them. We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So this is how they justify their conduct. This is how they legitimize their behavior. They actually quote the Shema, right? Out of the book of Deuteronomy. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God, he is one. We're sound theologians. We're monotheists. We believe there is only one Lord God, the Almighty, the creator of all things. We know, therefore, that there are no other gods. And we have this knowledge. We know, therefore, that these idols are nothing. These temples are nothing. These sacrifices are nothing. And so we can ascend the hill to the temple of Apollo or Hermes or Poseidon or whomever we like. And once that animal is slaughtered and butchered and roasted, we can partake of those feasts and it doesn't matter. This is what we know. And we're defending it on solid theological grounds. Notice fourthly, they argue that their practice is a God-given right. Verse 9. Paul says, take careful note of his language, but take care that this right of ours, is that what he says? Take care that this right of yours, this so-called right that you have appropriated for yourself, take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. And so they have convinced themselves that it is okay to gather in temples to eat food offered to idols because this is a practical outworking of their knowledge and a reminder of their elevated status in Christ. They're appealing to solid theological grounds to defend their practice, but in actual fact, what they perceive to be legitimate in the sight of God, they have mislabeled a god given 
right. This is the problem. Paul addresses the issue with a solution. Four steps in the solution. He reminds them firstly that their so-called knowledge arises from arrogance. Verse 1. Now concerning the food offered to idols, he quotes them. We know that all of us possess knowledge. What's Paul's assessment? This knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. They've quoted the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. What's the rest of the Shema out of Deuteronomy 6? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. They've convinced themselves that the marker of their spiritual status and spiritual maturity is this self-labeled knowledge. Paul says, no, this isn't real knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. This knowledge is actually arrogance. This knowledge flows from pride. And here's how I know it. It puffs up. It's ultimately going to destroy people. Love builds up. And this is how we know we're following God. Not because we're running around claiming to have this knowledge and participating in, in these feasts and eating this food offered to idols in their temples. No, this is our status. This is how we know we're one with Christ and we're accepted by God. If anyone loves God, verse three, he is known by God. And so the only marker, only marker, of spiritual status and spiritual maturity is love. He lays a foundation here. And scratch that comparison. He begins to ascend a mountain here. Let's put it that way. Right here at the start of chapter 8. And he begins an ascent. And he's going to start making his way up this ascent through chapters 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, and he's going to reach the top of Mount Everest in chapter 13. And there, what is his point going to be? He's going to expound that simply, simple statement there in verse 3. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. And what does it mean to love God? It means, as he says in verse 1, it means to build up. Love builds up. And so what's he going to say in chapter 13? I don't care if you're a martyr. I don't care if you have unbelievable knowledge. I don't care if you're a great teacher. I don't care if you have supernatural, miraculous, wonderful gifts. I really don't care what experiences you have. Apart from love, you're nothing. The only marker, only marker of our identity in Christ is love for God. If we love God, we're known of God. And if we love God, we will build up others. Their so-called knowledge, it arises from arrogance. The second point is this. Their knowledge is rooted in error. Verses 4 through 6. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, what is their position? We know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. Right? Paul begins his response. Although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, yeah, you're right. There is one God, the Father, 
from whom are all things and for whom we exist and one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we exist. That's true. But the inference you're drawing from it is wrong. You think simply your monotheism now gives you an open door to wander up to that temple of Poseidon, sit down there at that banquet and eat that food that you know was offered to an idol. Yes, there is but one true living God. There are no other gods that compare to him. But please understand, there are many gods and many lords. Who's he talking about? Demons. There's much more going on here. Yes, you're right. Monotheism, one Lord, one God, the creator, the sovereign of all. But there are also many gods and many lords. He's going to come back to this. Take a look just briefly at chapter 10. I think it'll help fill in the blank. Chapter 10, and look at what he says in verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul is scandalized by their behavior. And their misapplication of monotheism, this great truth that there is but one God. It is true. But that does not mitigate the fact that there are many lords and many gods, demons. That does not mitigate the fact that these feasts, they are demonic in nature. And it most certainly does not mitigate the fact that a wise Christian will not meddle in those things. Which might be for their ultimate harm and hurt. His third point in terms of solution is this. Their knowledge, not only does it arise from ignorance, arrogance, not only is it rooted in error, it's destructive. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge. Not everyone thinks like you. You're using it because you have this spiritual hierarchy and it sets you apart from others. But not all think like you. There are some through former associations with idols, maybe recent converts who eat food as really offered to an idol and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care. This right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak? In other words, if he doesn't share the same confidence of his position before God as you seem to convey... He's, he's, a, he's a new Christian. He's a weak Christian. He's still struggling with assurance. He's still unsure as to his identity and his position and his status in Christ. You come along, you spiritual elitist, and you give him the impression that if you really want to be spiritual, if you really want to be sure of your identity in Christ, you must have this knowledge and you must participate in these feasts as we are participating in them. And so if he follows you, and he likely will, because he's searching for some kind of confidence, some kind of assurance of his identity in Christ, he's going to mistake what you are espousing for truth and reality. This weak person, verse 11, he'll be destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. It will lead him ultimately back into what? Idolatry. This kind of knowledge is destructive. 
And fourthly, Paul says, their so-called knowledge, perhaps worst of all, is a sin against Christ. Verse 12, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak. Wow, you sin against Christ. Why? Because a lack of care and concern for God's people is a lack of care and concern for Christ. Why? Well, because if anyone loves God, he is known by God. How is this love made manifest? It builds up. You are not building up. You are tearing down. And therefore, you are sinning against the Lord Jesus Christ. That's chapter 8, folks. How do we build the bridge from it into today, the present? Five points of application I want to walk you through now. Very Christocentric, Christ-centered, as we seek to bring these verses and these truths into our context. The starting point is this. Christ is God. Look with me again at verse 6. It is incidental to Paul's argument, yet it becomes a central truth when we think of the full implications of what he is saying. Verse 6. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. As we sang together in the midst of our singing, uh, we recited a portion from Colossians 1. Here it is again. For by him, and please notice the prepositions. By him, that's Christ. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him. And all things were created for him. Three beautiful prepositions. All things were created by him. Meaning what? He is the principal cause, the cause efficient. He is the cause of all that exists, visible and invisible. All things were created through him. Meaning what? He is the means, the instrument by which the entire cosmos came into existence and holds together. And all things were created for him. Meaning what? He is the purpose of creation. Christ and his eternal glory. Christ is God. That's the first point. Second point is this. This Christ, who is God, died for us. Verse 11. And so by your knowledge... This weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. And so this one by whom all things were created, through whom all things were created, for whom all things were created. This one became man, the man Christ Jesus. And he became man for one purpose. It was to die for his people. John declares, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Commenting on that verse, Jonathan Edwards writes, there are two things that make Christ's love so wonderful. 
Number one, that he should be willing to endure suffering that was so great. Makes his love wonderful. And number two, that he should be willing to suffer great suffering to make atonement for wickedness that was so great. Our sin is so deep that only the death of the Son of God can save us. You see how this builds. Christ is God. This Christ died for us. Third point is this. This Christ is the only stumbling block. He is the only stumbling block. Look at what Paul writes in verse 9. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. There is only one legitimate stumbling block. It's the Lord Jesus himself. Paul tells us that back in chapter 1, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ, God, who made all things, by whom, through whom, and for whom all things exist and were created. We preach that this one true living God became man. We preach that this man died on the cross for us. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. And folly, absolute foolishness to Gentiles. And it is a stumbling block. Why? Here's why people trip over the Lord Jesus. Are you ready? It's actually quite simple. Here's why people get scandalized by the message of the cross. It's because it makes absolutely nothing of man. It makes nothing of man. It tells us that we're sinners. It tells us that the only thing we deserve from God is judgment. It tells us that we contribute nothing to our salvation. It tells us that salvation rests completely on Christ. That's a stumbling block. What are the Corinthian believers doing? They're creating other stumbling blocks. That's the only stumbling block, friend. It is the preaching of Christ crucified. That God incarnate died for sinners and there is absolutely nothing we can do to endear ourselves to God. We do not have one ounce of merit. There is absolutely nothing we contribute to our salvation. We are sinners at enmity with God. And salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. That is a stumbling block for the natural man. What are some of these Corinthian believers doing? They are creating other stumbling blocks. And in this context... It is this so-called liberty that they think they're enjoying, where in actual fact, what they are equating as being part of the Christian faith is actually going to cause others to stumble. Well, that's extremely relevant today. We can do that with our cultural practices. We can do that with our political ideologies. We can do that with our personal preferences. We can equate these things and so much more so closely with the Christian faith that these things in our thinking become part and parcel of the Christian faith, the message of the cross. And in so doing, we create unnecessarily, unnecessary stumbling blocks. No, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Here's the fourth point then, building. This Christ is our identity. He is God. He died for us. 
He is the only stumbling block. He is our identity. Look with me again at verse 6. It's easy to miss. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. We exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Who's the we in that context? He's not referring to humanity in general. To whom is he referring? The church, Christians, we exist for God and we exist for God. Why? Because the last statement in verse six, we exist through Christ, meaning what? Christ has brought us into existence. And so we stated it earlier. Not only is he the creator of all things, but he's the head of the church, the body, right? He's the head of the new heavens and the new earth. And so Christ has brought about this new creation of which we are part. We are implanted in him. We are one with him. We now exist through him and we exist for God. This is our identity. And therefore, in the context of chapter one, if you can go all the way back there in your mind's eye, uh, we make no other boast than in the Lord. Here's the application. When we look to something, and this is what the Corinthians are doing over and over again. When we look to something other than Christ, other than Christ, we end up devising means by which to convince ourselves and demonstrate to others that we are spiritual. When we've lost sight of our identity in Christ, here is what we will do. This is our default position. We gravitate in that direction always. We will devise other means by which to convince ourselves. This is precisely what these believers are doing. Convince ourselves. And along with that, demonstrate to others, prove to others that we are spiritual. We are something in the sight of God. We will gravitate to causes we will gravitate to movements. We will gravitate to ideologies. We will become fierce defenders of these things because they give us an identity that sets us apart. They make us feel good about ourselves. We attach our spiritual status to these things rather than to Christ. And Paul's assessment, all of this, I think is wonderfully summed up at the start of verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. We can transcribe that as follows. And I pray we get this from this text. Nothing will commend you to God. Nothing, friend. We think there are 101 things. We'll give ourselves to this. We'll do that. We'll adopt this idea, ideology, this position. And all the while we're thinking that there is something special about this that somehow endears me to God. No, nothing commends us to God apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. And the moment we think there is something that commends us to God, we have fallen into the Corinthian dilemma because we are no longer deriving our identity from Christ and no longer living out our status in Christ in every sphere of life. And here's the fifth point, the conclusion. Christ compels us to love. And so he is God. He died for us. He is the only stumbling block. He is our identity. 
And right back to where Paul began, Christ compels us to love, verse 1, now concerning food offered to idols. We know that all of us possess knowledge. Now this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And so again, I pray we get it. The mark of Christian status and identity. Please listen closely to my words. The mark of Christian status and identity is not theoretical knowledge. Don't care how well you do on the exam. It, is not, it indicates nothing as to our identity or our status. The mark of Christian status and identity is not fantastic spiritual gifts. We're going to get to that in chapter 12. It is not great acts of self-deprivation. It is not deeply emotional experiences. It is not pushing the boundaries of Christian liberty. No, the only mark of Christian status and identity is love. If anyone loves God, he is known by God. How do we know we love God? Love builds up our heavenly father. May this be our experience before you. May you by the gospel renew and quicken our love for you our love for the Lord Jesus and our delight in the gospel, the good news of salvation, Christ crucified. May this shape us and mold us and influence us, whereby this love may be made evident in our daily lives and truly we might be instruments through which you build up, edify, nurture, and encourage We again seek these things from your hand for our good and your glory. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.